Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Apuhoff. On January 31st, 2021, happy birthday to my sister Sarah. Yeah, happy birthday. And also February 2nd, Groundhog Day. Okay. Happy birthday to my brother Steve. Really? Born on Groundhog Day? Yep. Wow. Hmm. It's tough to live down. So uh, we're sitting here waiting for the big snow. We're not waiting. It's snowing. Well, it is snowing, but uh, it's snowing like nobody's business, Thompson. Yeah, and I just saw Dixon and Mark get out of the car with ten bags of groceries. Well, we know where we're going. So we run out of groceries. They're expecting the big one. Really? Well, yeah. it's, it's pitch white outside, as they like to say. So we squeezed in a walk mm. just when the snow was starting. It was starting, yeah. and it was Nipperu. Yeah, it was quite chilly. It was, and not a ton of people out. No, one exuberant lady. Told us she was looking forward to the snow. Cross-country skiing. Yep. She's got her skis ready. ready right outside go. her door. Right. Well, we'll see. So, we will see. And uh, we, uh, you know, we are ready to hunker down, I think. Yeah, we're, I'm all for it as long as uh, we keep the power. You know, that's always oh, the that's issue. Oh, that's true. The winds are supposed to yeah. rise up. Yeah. And uh, power can go. Power is it makes this entirely different experience. So, um we're rooting for the power. To yeah, we also there. noticed people buying firewood. Yeah, that never happens. There are all these places that have you know, like little signs, you know, take a batch of firewood, leave $5, you know, honor system. And, you know, it's always just a bunch of firewood. No one's ever buying it. And no, they, today, do buy it. no one's ever bought it. We this don't is, know. This is the first time that anyone's ever bought it. And, uh, and it's probably not for, not for the romance of it. Probably no, because it's, it's all romance. They fear I, no, they fear that the power goes no, out. No, no, no. Tamsin, you need to be able you to You know what's light coming up? Valentine's Day is coming up. I know you're not Oh, they're shopping ahead? They're, exactly. They're thinking ahead of Valentine's Day. Right. They're romanticists. I, I, I don't think it. that's the word. No? There's a, a few too many syllables there. Really? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think I got it right. All right. Romanticists? Yeah. The romantic individuals. The romanticists. I, I, I stand by that word. Uh, all right. So in any event, we're hunkering down, reading the newspaper. Yeah, maybe we should make some bagels. <laughs> Did you see that article in the New York Times this week? No, I didn't see it. No. There's a whole page oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, about yeah. how to make oh, bagels. I, yeah, I, I turned fast. Like there. a whole New York Times yeah. newspaper page. Well, it's ridiculous because like when the Times does a recipe like that, different steps. they say we broke it down, make it easy for you, and it's ridiculously impossible. And right. if there's anything that's predictably going to go awry, it's making a bagel. Because when you, you make a bagel properly, you have to boil the dough before you bake it. And it, it's insanity, I mean, to do that. Don't you think? I can't imagine that it really works. And we've done it once. It's, it's clearly, talking about not worth the trouble. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> b- bread generally is not worth the oh, trouble. Oh, come on. Bread is... Worth- I've made bread. But, 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 you got to have a lot of time. A lot of bread is just you mix a few things. I understand. it's amazing compared. But it rises and you got to deal with that. And then you got to, it rises again. You deal it with rises that. on its own. There's nothing I, to deal with. I understand. With. But it's, a, it's an all day commitment. Uh, you know, it's uh, you got to be a snowbound. Maybe we'll make some bread tomorrow. Would be yeah. Let's do that. Let's do. Let's, do we Start have enough your fl- sourdough starter? Do we now. have enough flour to make bread? Do we have enough flour? If we don't, maybe oh, Dixon and Mark do. Yes, they do. I'm sure they do. Uh yeah. So, um, you know, a story. It's not even one story. It's like there's a story every day uh, about uh, Facebook uh, I know. stopping. I know. The, You've 
limiting you've distribution. Been, it drives me crazy. Because you've it, been delighting in it. Well, it's not delighting yeah, Every in time it. I ask you, what are you reading? And you say, oh, it's legal stuff. It's legal stuff, right. And you're overjoyed. Well, I'm not overjoyed. But and here, I'm like, really? When are we getting over this? Well, look, I, I will say this too. We don't like to talk about legal stuff on this because this is supposed to be lighter, fair. And I don't want to drill down on legal stuff. Yeah, legal stuff's pretty boring. So this is not really legal stuff in the sense, but it's not kind well, it's of it's political. And I want to say that. I think the thing is, it's too. not that we don't talk about legal stuff. Well, we don't well, talk about politi- political can stuff. Can I jump in here? Because, yeah. it's, you know, we're this dancing is around it. political. Here's the deal, okay? So the question is, uh, how does Facebook handle a situation when people are objecting to the kind of stuff that's coming across in tweets? And the obvious example is Trump's tweets. And they suspend, uh, you know, Trump's ability to, to use uh, Facebook. They suspend his ability to tweet, etc. Twitter. Twitter. Okay. Uh, Facebook I'm, I'm out of my Twitter own. now. I don't know, but uh, I don't, it's not. Let's talk about <laughs> that Facebook. That would be the only reason for Facebook no, no, to be involved. Let's talk about Facebook. Facebook. Okay. So um, here's the thing: Facebook doesn't want to uh, put uh, allow Trump to use it. And uh, it, it could be Trump, it could be anybody else. I don't want to get into that. But here's here's my point: People say, "Well, that seems odd." A little bit instinctively, it just seems odd. And you say, why is that? Because usually people get to say what they want to say. It gets on the news or it doesn't. Uh, their view is heard. Sometimes it's abhorrent, whatever it is it is. But people say First Amendment, First Amendment. And then people seem to know something about it. When you uh, say First Amendment, First Amendment, yeah, what do you mean? The First Amendment of the Constitution, which says that... Uh, you can't interfere with free speech. And I'll come back to what it says okay. precisely in a moment. Right. So people say so, the first reaction is First Amendment. And someone says, well, First Amendment doesn't apply to private organizations like Facebook. In other words, they can say you can't use our platform. And why? Because what the First Amendment really says is Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression. And that's why Facebook is in a business that the, the government is not. In other words, Facebook is now in the censorship business in a sense, whereas the government's not allowed to do censorship. I know I'm putting it a rough way, but in, that's what's going on. And how is so you say that seems weird. The government can't do that, but Facebook can do it. And then you say, well, how the heck are they going to do it? And then here's where it gets super weird. I'm reading in the paper this weird, sorry, this week, I read in the paper that the way that Facebook is really going to make a final decision on what to do with Trump and the like is they have an oversight board, right? And what's called an oversight board. And the oversight board uh, is like a U.S. Supreme Court. They say it's populated by uh, Supreme Court clerks, people who are nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, people who are nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, really good, important people. And yet it seems odd. It's a private Supreme Court, the way the Times puts it. You know, I prefer, this is Ben Smith writing about it, I prefer to picture the members of this court or council or whatever it is wearing reflective suits and hovering via hologram around a glowing table. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like an alternative universe in a Marvel comic book. It doesn't make any sense. Supreme Court can't do this, but Facebook put together a faux Supreme Court. So what's, can that possibly be right? Can that possibly work? Are we living with this? And the answer is uh, no, no, and no, even though no one's come up with this. That's why we're doing it on the podcast very quickly. I know your patience is waning, but here's why. Here's why this is not going to last, all right? We're going to move out of this area because... It's not, here's what's, here's what the oversight board is doing, all right? There, there is a statute. There is a law. 
People say Congress can make no law. No, no, no. We're all talking about a law. It's called Section 230C2, something called the Communications Decency Act. And what it says is this, that no provider of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider considers to be, and here's the test, obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. So that's what they're applying. They're not just saying, what do we think is cool for us to have on our site? They're applying a U.S. law, Section 230. It sounds like it's not a very old law. uh, It goes back to uh, 1996. Okay. I mean, it doesn't go back to our forefathers. No, no, absolutely not. Was it invented for the internet? So, so this oversight board isn't just saying, "Ah, what do we feel like having?" They say they're actually interpreting the law. So, the first question you say to yourself is, "Well, if they're interpreting the law, there's going to be arguments that they got it wrong." And notwithstanding this notion of the private people can do what they want, and the public, uh, you know, authorities are limited in a different way, no. Once they're interpreting the law, their interpretation of the law can be challenged. So, Facebook could end up in court. They don't have carte blanche. That's point one. The idea about Facebook being on its own, I think, is just wrong. Number two is that the idea about Congress shall make no law inhibiting freedom of expression, there is a law. It's 230. They made the law. And a lot of people are arguing that Section 230 is privatizing censorship. It's inhibiting free expression. So now you have a First Amendment challenge coming down the pike. This will wind its way down the pike slowly. It doesn't work. Freedom of expression is going to be in the courts. But number three, and perhaps the most important thing, is, of course, technology overtaking everything else. It turns out that while Facebook has the ability, technologically, to keep people away from using its, its uh, platform or to limiting how they use its platform, There are emerging now uh, social media sites in which that ability does not exist. And those sites, such as Library, LBRY, Minds, and Sessions, rely on something called blockchain technology. God knows I can't explain blockchain technology. But that's where people are now turning who don't want to be limited in this way and want their message out. So this whole concern about what Facebook can do in camp could could be short-lived because there's an alternative to get on a different social media platform, blockchain technology-oriented, which cannot be blocked, in which the whole issue is going to be bypassed. And just as well, because you, Facebook can't be in the business of censoring or deciding what's objectionable and what can't be on the airwaves or can't be on its platform. It just can't work that way. You can't have these guys in silver suits making these decisions and privatizing censorship. So uh, to me, I'm sorry to get into something that's a little bit substantive and it's a little bit legal, but it technically drives me crazy listening to these. You, you seem to be containing yourself. What, 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 what? No, 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 no. I just, you, you know, that, there's a little bit of a, you know, what? snarky remark there. Sorry to get into something a little bit substantive. No, 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 no. Right? I'm not being snarky. I'm not being yeah, snarky. Yes, I thought you're you were saying, losing you're your patience. You're saying that, uh, you know, um, my... Uh, uh, your stuff forte is, not... is never substantive. No, I think the next thing that you're going to talk about is actually highly substantive. No. 
Yes, it is. All right, so good. All right, good Good for you and the blockchain people. All right. <laughs> All right, I'm fine. sure you'll prevail. No, I'm not, I'm not prevailing. I'm just saying it's inevitable. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you what's okay. going to happen a All year right. from now. All right. All you right. can take it to the bank, Dempsey. Uh-huh. Um, that doesn't always work with your predictions, but anyway. Yeah. Um, all right. So in the New York times, uh, on a more sort of sensory note, <laughs> there's uh, in the magazine section, there's an article by Brooke Jarvis Yeah. called the forgotten sense. Yeah. Millions lost it to COVID-19. What can the virus's strangest symptom teach us about the mysteries of smell? Okay. So you you've heard them say that uh, you know one of the symptoms of uh, COVID yeah. is loss of uh, smell and taste. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, it turns out uh, part of this article is telling you about how it took a long time for people to figure that out. Okay, number two, and in the process of, uh, you know, figuring that out and publicizing it and uh, having people experience it caused a great deal of interest in the study of the sense of smell, which was heretofore kind of languishing on the scientific shelves. You know, people didn't, weren't interested in financing studies about smell how important is it? It is considered uh, so kind of the, one of the lesser senses. Huh? Yes, it is. Okay. Seen as practically vestigial and often handy, sometimes pleasant, but ultimately unimportant holdover from our distant past. And people had uh, apparently, scientists adopted uh, the attitudes of Paul Broca, a 19th century neuroscientist, pointing to the relatively s- relative smallness of our, our olfactory bulbs uh, as evidence that our brain had triumphed over them. You know, we're, we're not even very good at smelling because we don't need to be because our brain can figure out, right. figure everything out. Right. Um, and so... Um, this is all resorted, it resulted in a renaissance in smell science, okay, and uh, including a discovery only 30 years ago of the neural receptors that allow us to perceive and make sense of the smells around us. Oh, okay. Okay. Let me just give you an example. Vision, okay, depends on four kinds of receptors, all right? Smell uses about four Really? All right. So it's a very complex system. It's a complex, you know, interaction, more directly interacting with the brain than even vision. And uh, these receptors together are estimated to be able to detect as many as a trillion smells. Trillion smells. Really? That's a lot of smells. Now, it turns out we're actually pretty good at smelling. Okay, we're not the worst of all the animals. We're probably right there in the middle. Okay, and let me give you some examples. Our brains can tell the difference between exercise sweat and fear sweat. Really? Not only that, but the difference between a glass of wine that has recently contained a fruit fly and one that has not. We, we can do this? Yes. People, there have been studies where people have, you know. Uh, done this? Done this. Really? You know. Um, 
One inventive study found that provided we are willing to crawl around with our faces in the grass, humans are fully capable of finding a scent trail while blindfolded. Not as capable as a dog, Mm -hmm. okay? But uh, we can follow the scent. Another study found that we can tell from sniffing a t-shirt another person has worn, whether that person's immune system is similar to ours. What? Why would we care about that? Because if it's different, we find the person more attractive. What? Not only that, our noses can distinguish between two groups of mice that have different immune systems. Yeah, all right. Well, now you're really okay. going crazy. So it's, it's just... Well, uh, why would we find people with different immune systems attractive? That's the question. I, I have no idea. That's a whole separate topic. Oh. Anyway, um, so there's a, a lot of discussion here and, um, the, you know, uh, people's emails, scientists, you know, knows people's emails were blowing up in March a year ago yeah. as uh, all these revelations about uh, losing the, the right. sense of smell. From COVID. Right. Now, at first they just thought, oh, it's some, you know, it's a respiratory uh, illness. So your nose gets blocked. Okay. Right. And they said, no, a lot of people with the, with the loss did not have any kind of blockage. Right. It wasn't due to that. All right. So they got very excited. And, you know, because they're interested in understanding the COVID aspect, yeah. because we're so COVID crazy. Yeah. Uh, and rightfully so. It's been this, you know, huge devastation um it's really you know revived interest in smell okay altogether so that's a positive thing let me tell you some more things in the covid covid related okay they were reporting loss of taste as well as smell right but they're related right they're related okay so probably um actually if you separate taste is what they call taste is detected by the taste buds, which only detect sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami. Okay. Okay. And once looked into it, all of those things were operational. Taste buds were fine. Right. It was really the smell. The um, separating smell um, uh, from taste is complicated because of what's called oral referral. So, you know, things working in tandem. There's also another um, sensation we experience that I thought was interesting. I didn't uh, really know much about. Trigeminal, trigeminal system, the trigeminal system. But um, using nerves to experience the coolness of mint, the spiciness of peppers, the bubble experience of carbonation. Okay. Okay. So that's another kind of taste sensation wrapped up right. in all these other things. Yeah, I just I just thought it was interesting. Anyway, uh, to make a long story short, at a certain point it becomes obvious that the lack of sense of smell in people is a better predictor of the infection being present, the virus being present in the person, yeah. than a lot of other things, including. Um, you know, 
they make a point of saying at a certain point, schools, restaurants, airports, still taking people's temperatures. Right. When well, that, that's useless. You know, right, yeah. um, many, many people right. uh, have COVID without having a fever. Right. Uh, so uh, so it, they've only begun to understand that uh, this is a legitimate symptom okay. that uh, you but know, they don't can be useful. they don't know why. No, they don't know why COVID does. No, so the, you know it's a it's a long, long article, and um, there's uh, more and more. Um, you know, it, it's too complex for me to understand. But some other interesting points that come up of this, you know, um, people who don't have a sense of smell are anosmic. Okay. okay, and if you have like a not very good sense of smell, partial loss of smell, it's hyposmic. Okay. Okay. Um, so I thought that was an interesting, uh, interesting terminology, and uh, of course there are Facebook clubs. Your favorite, your favorite Facebook. <laughs> My favorite. Uh, yeah. Facebook groups addressing this because if it's one thing if you grow up without a sense of smell, right? Okay, you don't know what you're missing, but people who lose their sense of smell, right, um, are often devastated. And, uh, you know, uh, resulting in depression, et cetera, and so forth. So there's a, a COVID group um, organized by Chrissy Kelly called Absent, A-B-S-C-E-N-T. Okay. And, oh, it's um, good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. What's interesting, and, you know, it's uh, people can get together and vent mm-hmm. and you know, about oh. the lack of sense of smell. And so interesting here is often when she... When um, sort of posting would spike on the site, Um, you know, new people, you know, having lost their sense of smell, et cetera, she noticed that it often coincided with the spikes in particular cities. And she, you know, she could uh, tell where it was coming from. Um, So that was kind of, you know, interesting uh, to her. Let's see, what else did I want to just uh, mention? The COVID sufferers generally get their smell back, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, But sometimes it comes back with a distortion in, in, you know, kind of a a smaller group. Things don't smell the same way they did before. Mm -hmm. And things that used to smell fantastic now, uh, you know, uh, smell awful. Hmm. Etc. So there are those alterations. So anyway, uh, I'm interested that um, this is kind of uh, put a stoplight on the. S- it's not a spot. A spotlight. Stop. <laughs> spotlight. Right. It's, I was close. Yeah. On the sense of smell. Yeah. Because they mentioned that smell loss can be an early warning sign of diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, children with autism actually have different automatic sniff reaction than those who are neurotypical. And they use more parts of their brain to process odors. And this is really interesting. Autistic children can also follow social cues better if they smell a mother's odor, even if she's not present. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. Okay. Really interesting topic, and uh, it took COVID to make us pay attention. All right. Uh, yeah. 
All right, so basketball. So I know you think I'm going to talk about, uh, you know, the normal NBA stars uh, and the kind of stuff that uh, dominates the airwaves. And the answer is not All exactly. All trades. Yeah, and, not exactly, yeah. but not exactly. We're going to do something a little bit different. Really? We're going to talk about a player you never heard of. You never heard of. And here's how it comes up. There's an interview. There, I will tell you right now, the, the two top players in the NBA, the two top young players, are Luka Doncic and uh, Giannis, uh, I'm going to mispronounce his name because I always do, uh, Anta, uh, Antetokounmpo, right? But we'll call him Giannis. Uh, or the Greek freak, as he's sometimes known. He's won the last two MVP awards. Lucas is probably going to win it this year in many people's estimation. They're young players. They're superstars. They're the future of the league. And, the, and what's very interesting is who their idols are, who their favorite players are. And this leads us to an odd place. Doncic was asked this question on NBA television a couple weeks ago. He said, where did he learn his game from? And he mentions LeBron James. And then he says, I also watched Spinolas, Vasilis Spinolas. I don't know if you guys know him. Charles Barkley's there. He says, Spinolas, is that the guy from Fast Times at Ridgemont High? Well, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Vasilis Spinolas is a star of European basketball particularly the Greek national team. Uh, he's a great Greek basketball player. How great is he? He's, uh, they asked Giannis if he was familiar with him. Well, Giannis is the Greek freak. Giannis said, uh, Spinolas, Spinolas is the Kobe or Jordan of Europe. And Giannis says he too models his game on Spinolas. How is it that the two top young players in the NBA model their game on a guy that neither of us has never heard of. Neither of us has never heard of it? Yeah, has ever heard of it. Yeah. Sorry. But what about Granger? I didn't ask Granger. But I'll, he, I'll, he's the guy you might know. Well, I, I bet he doesn't because nobody knows. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. He, so what's who is this guy? So he's, he's now uh, 38 years old, right? So his career is behind him in a sense. But uh, his, uh, he's been a dominant European player uh, for years and years. He owns all these records in the EuroLeague. He's the, and it's called the EuroLeague. He's the all-time leader in points and assists. He is a basketball demigod in Europe for anyone of his generation. You can look at him here. He, he looks uh, not too formidable. He looks like I'm an accountant, the guy with the basketball. Uh, you know, he's a bearded, balding guy. But apparently, he's quite good at basketball. His greatest moment internationally was in 2006, he led, he led the Greek national team to the world championships, a team with nobody who was an NBA player on the team, uh, to beat the United States, which was shocked with NBA players. And it was shocking and it was cause for great celebration in Greece. So you're saying to yourself, how could this guy never play in the NBA? He's, he's an all-time superstar. We never heard of him because he never played in the NBA. And here's the weirdest thing. He did play in the NBA. He did play in the NBA. After his great success in 2006, he came to the NBA, played for the Houston Rockets for the year, and he never meshed with the team. He never meshed with the coach. Uh, and as a result, they didn't play him. And he averaged uh, a meager 
two and a half points per game in what they call garbage time. They'd stick him in at the end of the game when the game was already decided. He never could mesh with the NBA-style players. He never got a chance. And at the end of the year, he just left and went back to Europe. Well, what do you think the problem really was? Well, it's very hard to say. He just said it was a different style of play. Uh, his quote is, wrong place at the wrong time. Some things just don't work. Maybe it's better that I went back and made this career. That's his quote. And, you know, you do have to be on the right team with the right coaches and the right group. Who knows? Who knows? But it, if this got to be such a superstar, for it not to work is nuts. And here's the strangest thing about the story. So now he's, you know, within a stone's throw of 40. Well, <laughs> There's a question now is whether he's going to be recruited to pay, play on the Greek national team in the next couple of years. Could he possibly do it? And the truth is he's being recruited uh, to play on the Greek national team. And you'll never guess who the coach of the Greek national team is. You'll never guess. It's, it's Rich Patino, the coach oh. at Louisville. <laughs> the coach of the Greek national team. And... Uh, He's and they have a quote from him. He's the one recruiting, uh, you know, Spinolas. And he said, you know, I think he might bite. So uh, I don't know. This is that's totally. Weird. I okay. mean, talk about a sport that's supposed to be so international, and all these players going back and forth to Europe. This is uh, a guy who's idolized by the two best young players in the NBA, and he's a mystery. Totally weird to me. I. Let me make one other NBA point. Oh, by all means, yes. What really got the ball rolling in oh, all this discussion of COVID yeah. and um, and sense of smell yeah. was actually when Rudy Go- Gobert. Yeah, Rudy Gobert. It? Gobert. Yeah. Rudy yeah. Gobert. Yeah. Um, Utah Jazz star yeah. um, whose uh, diagnosis caused the NBA to abruptly suspend its season. Well, yeah, it's okay. a little bit of an overstatement. But yeah. All right, so, well... Um, just after Gobert mocked the danger by right, touching all right, the microphones right, in the news conference, right. okay, uh, he announced that he had lost his sense of smell. Yeah. And once he did that, people were interested. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, uh, well, the NBA has been uh, quite helpful and a forerunner in terms of diagnosis uh, and development of the bubble and all that. So they're they're deeply into this. Yeah, but it's a, it just tells you it takes you know something sexy like an NBA star. To get people interested in science, really. Oh, that's true. In many ways. So thank you, Gobert. Um, I read an interesting obituary. Mm-hmm. The obituary of Christopher Little. Right. Who built empire around Boy Wizard, as it says in the New York Times. Yes, well, we know what that is. So uh, he was the, I guess, the literary agent yeah. for... Um, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Uh, she had sent her manuscript, like, uh, you know, three chapters of uh, her early manuscript right. to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, she picked his name uh, off of, you know, out of the phone book or whatever, uh, a list of agents, because she thought it was like a nice name, a nice children's character right, right children's book character name well what christopher what, little oh it's like the uh what did the pool what was his name christopher robin yeah it's close enough and, and, and uh, well she was a single mom she was like she had no right. background well, we know we all know that story but yeah. the thing is he he well, just 
threw it aside. She had no connection. He was not remotely interested. No, no of course not. And uh, somebody else in the office and said, no, "Nor was he a big time." Wait agent. just a daggone minute. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know the rest is history. Well, but someone else in the office noticed that the, it was bound very nicely. Apparently, uh, J.K. Rowling had put a nice binding on it, and uh, that's what got her interested. And then she had him look at it, and he got a little bit interested, and uh, took it off the uh, waste pile. Yeah. Effectively. So anyway, so um, they all did very well. Well, they did very well. But it's even stranger in a a sense because... So he has to find a publisher. He's just an agent, right? Right. So he sends it to publishers. And and apparently, the way you do that is you make 10 copies of the the manuscript and you send it to a publisher. And he's sending it to 10 or 12 publishers. Well, he's not even willing to invest that deeply into it. So he sends it to one publisher at a time. And if they don't like it, and many of them didn't, he asked them for the copies back so he doesn't have to make all the copies. He doesn't want to invest in copies. So now he's got the copies back and he sends it to the next publisher, the next publisher, the next publisher. And finally, he gets someone to bite and they get a contract. I think uh, the total contract for the first book for, in, for uh, distribution in England was uh, $5,800. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I know and, it was just 500 copies. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he sat back yeah. and wouldn't even negotiate uh, like the foreign rights or film right. rights, which was uh, smart. Which was, which was smart. Well, he had confidence. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why. But you know, so so she's made made a billion dollars, and you get the feeling from the article. They don't really break it down precisely. Then most of the money comes in from film rights, right? Uh, and he's made sixty million dollars. Yes, sixty million dollars. Well, and it's... yeah, it's a whole interesting story. He gets into literary. Agent work almost by accident. Yeah, you know, right. just uh, he's a great salesman and yeah. he's a great negotiator. Right, great negotiator. and somebody, a friend of his, asks him to negotiate something, and you know, and it, and it does very well. That becomes a film. Yeah, and um, but uh, you know, then he, he you know, total... doesn't have any real big stuff until no, she happens along. Doesn't have real big stuff after big stuff afterward either. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was his thing. But uh, it's amazing it ever got published. Well. Yeah, it did quite well. Yeah. All right. So um, it, there's, I just want to say something about Hall of Fame voting. Nobody was voted into the Hall of Fame. Baseball. Baseball Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm sorry. The Baseball Hall of Fame. Just so people know what you're talking and, about. And not to get too back in the Facebook and the idea of, uh, you know, dealing uh, with being put off by political views and the like. But that's what happened. So what you had is you had the leading candidate, the person who came the closest. Uh, was of course um, why am I blanking on his name now who's the pitcher Tempton? Cy Young no 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 no. Kurt Schilling Kurt Schilling who uh, played for several teams he played notably for Arizona he played for Philadelphia uh, he played for Boston and he has statistics that don't place him like you know in the pantheon he's not one of the great all time players but they're enough. They're enough to be in the Hall of Fame. And he had great postseason success besides, right. okay. and he's kind of well-known. But what's holding him back? What's holding him back uh, are his political views. Now, I don't want to get into his political views, all right? I'm not going to defend his political views, all right? But it's odd that he's he's not in the Hall of Fame because his political views. Now, look, you can't vote against him otherwise. He's not, a again, in the pantheon. But he's pretty clearly kind of Hall of Fame material. But his political views are tough to take. He's a pro-Trump guy. And uh, 
and even during the uh, the capital um incident uh you know he came out and uh he he certainly didn't he wasn't in favor of the violence or anything like that but he said you know i think you know the the, the insurrectionists or everyone to call them are being you know depicted in an unfair manner i don't think the violence is being done by conservatives whatever you know the kind of stuff you might expect and um there couldn't be a clearer indication that it's a political issue in large part than that 15 of the people who had voted for him to be in the Hall of Fame this year, after that incident, asked to change their vote. Really? Okay. So mm-hmm. think about this. The guy wins 200 some odd games in the major leagues. He stops pitching five or six years ago. Actually, more than that, more like almost 10 years ago. Uh, the Hall of Fame is supposed to be based on his performance as a player and his character as a player, basically. You know, how do he comport himself as an athlete, whatever. And now, and these folks are being, thinking about the voting by, well, this incident happened here. He's kind of pro-Trump. Maybe he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. It's pretty weird. Pretty weird to me, at least. Um, and it's a tough thing to enforce. And people now are saying, well, isn't that what you're doing with respect to steroids? And the answer to that is no. I mean, people are being kept out of the Hall because of steroids like Barry Bonds and the like. But it's not because they're bad people. It's not a character issue. It's because their statistics are inflated. They have more home runs than they would have otherwise had because they use steroids. That's why those people are kept out. This idea of keeping people out because of character is rough. I don't think it's, uh, it becomes difficult to, to defend. And look, it's not the most important thing in the world that Kurt Schilling gets in the Hall of Fame. I'm not overly concerned about it. But it is just... It strikes me as a little. Weird. Is this new? Is this uh, have other years there been political no, issues I think, I, with I, players? I, uh, I think there haven't. What people do is they point to see Ty Cobb's in the Hall of Fame. He was a jerk, so that kind of cuts the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it's not. But it is always a little bit of a popularity contest. What the writers tend to uh, again, you have the steroid as the bridge into this, but I don't think that's a character issue in my mind. Although mm-hmm. I guess some people get confused and think it is. The other thing is that writers usually think of what their idea of character is being nice to writers, okay? If a certain person during the play gave a lot of interviews, was patient with writers, gave them stories, treated them very well, that's a good person, uh, which I find totally odd. But that's the way it's been. So people who are unpopular with the writers have a tougher time to get in the Hall of Fame. So to that extent, character personality has been an issue. But not political views. And, and clearly that's part of it now. So it's weird. It's weird. Um, there was another uh, obituary. I know you looked at this. I looked at this too. A fellow named James Flynn. And it, it's, it's kind of, I find this fascinating actually. So this guy is very much political liberal. Um, he was quite disturbed. He was a socialist. Yes. I would call that a political liberal. liberal. And he was quite disturbed uh, or uh, disbelieving when he was first encountered uh, articles and so-called studies which said that IQ is affected by race. In particular, there were some very controversial books published, one by someone named Jensen, uh, later on by Drs. Flynn and Murray. I'm not sorry, by Dr. Murray. This is Dr. Flynn we're talking about, uh, saying that uh, people of different races have different IQ ceilings, if you will, just generally different IQs. Which leads to uh, thoughts about inferiority, which sort of uh, jives with the kind of thing you heard from the Nazis, the great Aryan race, et cetera, et cetera. You can imagine that would be quite disturbing. But scientifically, how does one uh, really attack that, if you will? 
how do you counter the evidence that that uh, apparently these doctors, these scientists came up with, Jensen and Murray? And Flynn actually stumbled upon something that is kind of ingenious, right? So they were saying that they've done studies that show that uh, this must be genetic because when they give the IQ test to uh, blacks, let's say, they get a lower scores, lower range of scores, and then they give it to whites. There you go. And what he noticed when he looked at all the evidence of IQ scores was that IQ scores uh, changed over time. That the way the I, the test was done uh, and what it was actually measuring... Well, they were recalibrated. Right, they were recalibrated. Well, that, that's, that's two different subjects. No, no, it's not two different subjects. Well, no. let, me, let me get it out first before you tell me it's two different uh-huh. subjects. What he's saying is... And, the, and this is James R. Flynn. James R. Flynn. What he's saying and what he found was this, that the tests were recalibrated every decade or so, but if you reverse the recalibration, okay... That's what he's doing. He's reversing. He's reverse engineering. Okay. Okay. okay the calibration. I got it. And I he got said, it. "What you find is that people years ago had lower IQs than people today." That's what he found. That was that was in response to the question: Are we getting smarter? No, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 no. I don't think that. No, no. Let me I don't finish. Think that addresses the race. Yes, issue. it does. And, and, I, and how? I'll how? Tell, I'm going to tell you why. Okay. So he said, just to finish the point, if you scored a hundred years ago. All right, and you reverse engineered. All right, people would generally score a seventy in the IQ test that we give today, which is borderline mentally disabled. Conversely, compared, if we were to be on the same scale as the IQ test that was done a hundred years ago, the average score, the norm, would be a hundred thirty of people today, which is genius. And he's saying it's not the case. That people were morons 100 years ago and they're geniuses today. That's just not right. And once you have that insight, he says, well, there has to be another explanation. And the explanation is that this so-called rise in IQ can't possibly be genetic. What it is, is the use of one's analytical facilities to do abstract thought as modern life increasingly relied on that kind of abstract reasoning is what's caused people to get higher scores on the IQ test. In other words, the environment, the more sophisticated environment that people are living in affects the IQ test score. Yeah, but he points out that that's, that's a, a tough thing to announce. I, I understand that. Okay, because on one hand you're saying I, I, that, but, but Let's take it in half steps. I understand what you're saying. Okay, but and the first... So the first instance is he's saying it's not correct to say that blacks have lower IQs by dint of race or DNA than whites. That's just wrong. Genetically, it's just wrong. But to go to your point, if they're scoring lower on the test, it's because of environment. And if it's environment, he feels he felt ambivalent about that because it's like he's saying to people, you're not raising your children correctly. You're not providing them the right kind of environment. And he felt bad about that because he felt that he was being judgmental in a way. But but putting that aside for just a moment, the most important point that he was rebutting was a genetic point, which was the point that Jensen and Murray were making. Uh, he's just saying it's just wrong to say right. that the okay. destiny of these folks okay. is that they have lower IQs, which is a big deal. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's an well, interesting Well, he's also test. an interesting guy. He was born in the States. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess he... 
because of his political activism, yeah. felt he would never really um, succeed in the academic system. Right. So he ends up in New Zealand. Right. right. And, uh, you know, um, has a life and uh, a career yeah. there. And he also, you know, it's funny, uh, notwithstanding that he felt so strongly that Dr. Murray was off base and his theory was quite objectionable, they became friends. And yeah, I guess his his uh, maybe it's his son who mentions that uh, you know if he disagreed with you, he enjoyed the discussion. Right. Okay. He was open he to other was, points of yeah, view. He he. Um, right. In his view, he said, you know, it's not like Murray is is some kind of bigot. He's just a scientist, yeah. and this is the way he interprets the data. I think he's interpreting the data wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. I interpret it this way. So fine. So anyway, so interesting guy ran for parliament, I think, three times yeah, and lost. He was unsuccessful. Political all his life, and yeah. uh, yet. Um, you know, I thought that's an ingenious way to counter the uh, genetic theory, because that was a big deal at one point. People were very excited about that. I remember years ago, it was quite controversial and quite heated. Um, and finally, there was uh, here's something I don't follow. There is a, an around the world race, around the world sailing race. It takes place every four years. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it goes on for 90 days or 80 days or something like that. And there's, there's the weather and there's all kinds of things that happen. Um, and really, there's weather on the open sea. Yes, there is. It's, it's, there's, right. there's rough weather and then there's doldrums, Tamsin. Doldrums. Doldrums, doldrums. Oh, yes. I know doldrums. Uh, yes. <laughs> good, good, good. But let's not talk about that in front of the children. In any event. Uh, so the first person to cross the finish line is a fellow named Charlie Dallin. Uh, and he crossed the finish line hours against uh, ahead of the next finisher, uh, but he didn't win. Really, really. Instead, uh, what happened was this: and the third person across the finish line was a fellow named Yannick Besthaven, a Frenchman. Uh, and what had happened to Yannick Besthaven earlier on in the race was that uh, another competitor in the race had encountered trouble as his boat had been uh, kind of been destroyed by a wave. And as a stress call went out. And the folks running the race encouraged uh, Best Haven and two other competitors to uh, track this fellow down, who was now in a lifeboat, mm-hmm. and make sure he was safe. Well, uh, one of the other competitors actually did track the fellow down, safe, not Best Haven. But in any event, Best Haven sort of had to put aside his racing for uh, some period of time. And uh, then he got back into the race, if you will. And what the uh, people running the race uh, determined uh, was that Best Haven, in the middle of the race, that Best Haven and the others would be given a handicap, if you will, a bonus, uh, because they had lost time in terms of to try to do this rescue. And they decided to reward uh, Best Haven 10 hours. Mm -hmm. 10 hours was the difference between coming in third and coming in first. And Best Haven is pictured here triumphantly as the uh, winner, winner of the race, uh, which is an odd way to win. But, um, it, you know, it's called the Vendée Globe. Uh, and, uh, you know, everybody took it the right way. Uh, the fellow Dallin in particular didn't complain. He said, that's okay. That's fine with me. Uh, all I wanted to do was be the first to cross the finish line, which is a philosophical way to put it. And uh, he didn't complain about the fact that he was placed second uh, because of Best Haven's bonus. Um but uh, I can just imagine if something happened in the U.S. that people go on and on about it uh, forever. Um, but there you go. So that's all I have, honey. And that's all I have. All right. So this is Tamsin Granger. We just have to deal with the snow.
That's your department. Is it? I'll be all shoveling. I'm going to put my feet up and uh, hunker down and enjoy the storm. Okay. Well, you got a lot of storm to enjoy. Uh, until uh, next week, this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. For Tamsin Dan, read the paper. See you then.